Hello and welcome to The Rabbit Hole, the definitive developer's podcast in fantabulous Chelsea, Manhattan. I'm your host, Michael Nunez. My co-host today, Dave Anderson. Our producer, William Jeffries. And our guest, Charles Curran. And today we'll be talking about unit testing. Unit testing is the most important thing that we do at the clients that we're on. And we'll be talking about unit testing best practices. Yeah. What does make good unit test? I've seen some bad ones, but mm. you know, what, what sets them apart from the good ones? I think that you need to kind of discover what your actual unit is and what the best way to test it and ensuring that that unit is tested. So I guess getting the definition of a unit would be the first thing that would be important. And that could mean very different things depending on what language or framework you're working on. Yeah. So like my Capybara feature test is not a unit of code. That is probably not a unit of code. Okay. <laughs> what about like if I have a test that I'm creating like some database records in it? That may be an integration test, but some teams may call that a unit test. Yeah. Hmm. I guess that's we need to get on the same page. <laughs> yeah. So I think that it's like really important to get on the same page with your team as to what's a unit test. I think that this is like a topic that I've been thinking about a lot in the last year or so since I've been doing a lot more React and what good unit tests for a React class would look like. Hmm. I think another factor there is how tightly coupled different sections of your code base are. Because if we're thinking about a unit as being an atomic unit that is yeah. not sub that cannot be subdivided any further, then some languages actually or some frameworks couple things so closely that you could end up having two very separate things which do kind of need to be tested together. Like I'm thinking you could have an ORM that's so deeply connected to your models that it would be impossible to test an individual function without a database connection. Right. Just say it. It's Rails. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it, Rails. You could use, yeah. be using SQL Alchemy. Hmm. What is SQL Alchemy? SQL Alchemy is an ORM in the Python world. A lot of people who use Flask partner Flask with SQL Alchemy so that way they can build objects out of things stored in their database. Hmm. Yeah, basically active record. Yeah, basically active Same record. deal. So what kind of testing framework do you, do you use for that? Like, is there a, I guess there's Factory Boy when you're working with that kind of stuff, right? Factory Boy could be helpful if you're creating mock objects. So we mentioned dummy data frameworks and mocking and stubbing. Does that play a role on having a slow test suite? And how do we speed up the test suite process in general in our code base? What are some reasons why slow test cases are happening when you run you know, all your specs? What are some of the things that would allude to that? Well, one thing could be that your code is slow. So, I mean, it actually could be helpful. The tests are pointing out to you what area of your code is slow. And a lot of test runners have a, f a feature where they'll highlight which tests individually are the slowest, which might point you in the right direction of where you can make some gains by refactoring. Hmm. Could be that you're also not isolating your tests enough. Like you thought you wrote a unit test, but actually you exercised half the code base by accident. You could also separate out some of the units that you already determined were units, but maybe those units are not small enough. For example, if there's a function that's running and takes a little while to return, you can have tests for that function and then separately 
if there's another unit of code that will become dependent on that function, you can mock that function out. It could be that you just have to refactor to pull out that functionality. You could also have an inverted pyramid where you just have too many feature tests and not enough unit tests. I've seen that before. It's tempting to do because the unit, the feature tests give you so much more comfort that everything's working. Yeah, as long as they're working properly and not being flaky because sometimes it's pretty non-deterministic. Very true. Phantom JS. <laughs> Browsers in general. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So what's a strategy if you are moving from a test suite that is so heavily reliant upon a great number of feature tests or end-to-end tests? I find like just the act of like creating the first unit test for something is the hardest thing sometimes. Mm-hmm. Like if, if there's just no test file when I look for it and you know there's a million feature tests, then it's very tempting just to, okay, I'll just bolt on another feature test at the end of that. Mm-hmm. But like just by writing that first test file and having it there, even if you don't exercise all of the code in that particular module, like if you can just start with writing one test and then when you come back to it, you know, just leave things better than you found it. Keep on growing that that coverage over time and maybe eventually deleting some feature tests. You can make unit testing a requirement as part of the code review process. I've seen that. Yeah. Peer pressure. Yep. There's also coverage to ensure that you have tests, right? If a particular file doesn't have X amount of percentages of the code tested, then it's not you won't even be able to merge it on GitHub. Mm-hmm. I find that to be a pretty good tactic to, you know, make fun of your coworkers to make sure that they write tests. Well, we don't <laughs> want to make fun of our coworkers, but like it's a, it's a good way to say, hey, we can, you know, up the coverage and make sure that that is all leveled. And right. Code. It kind of gamifies it. You got to like get a high score. Shout out to Code Climate for making this super good. Yeah. We all agree that private methods shouldn't be unit tested or that it's kosher, right? You don't normally test private methods. That can be like a really interesting argument. And in some languages, it's more clear cut than others. Right. For example, in Python, there is no true privacy. So there, there's like the belief and trust in the developers. So you usually have to denote that something's private by putting an underscore in front of the function or method. So then... Some developers that I've worked with doing Python code, they were adamant about testing private functions or methods. It's something that I don't personally prefer to do, but I think it's ultimately, like like I said, defining that unit of code and what is a unit of code. And if that's what your intentional public interface, then so be it. Then you have maybe tests that are a little bit more of what some people call an integration test. I think that it reminds me of an article that Martin Fowler wrote about sociable unit tests and solitary unit tests. I believe that's the terminology that he used. And so if you believe in like more sociable unit tests, that means that your unit tests may call other functions or rely upon other classes to a certain extent. And if you believe in like more solitary unit tests or if you want to do more solitary unit tests, you may be mocking and stubbing a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. I find when I unit test, if I'm constantly mocking and stubbing a lot of different functions and a lot of maybe some classes, I find that that's like an, that's an anti-pattern and that there's something, there's an issue there. Either my unit of code is 
too small and I have to make it bigger or I have to maybe refactor my code because these different modules are too dependent on each other. Right. Yeah. There's sometimes like way more graceful ways to get that same effect by doing dependency injection rather than stubbing things that are private. But I like, I like the idea that if you're writing a test for something, it should make it easier to work with in the future rather than harder to work with in the future. Where like if you're just doing like double entry bookkeeping where you're literally writing the same code in your test as you have in the method itself, then maybe that's not a good test and maybe you should question if you'd pull back a little bit and see if the unit that you should be testing is a little bit bigger. I think it can also be helpful to delete tests as you're writing them. Like, So for example, we were talking about private methods and whether or not you should test them. Sometimes I will test drive out private methods before I make them private. And then I will either make them private or, or I'll you know delete them and refactor them away. And I find that that's helpful for two reasons. One is that TDD allows me sort of a steering mechanism. It's like headlights that are showing me the way. And then it also allows me to clean up my test suite so that it's more readable and more well-formatted because I'm already in the mindset that some of these tests are going to need to be deleted. It gets you closer to the minimum number of tests. Yeah, and I think that helps also with self-documenting code. So self-documenting code, you want your tests to be extremely readable because they'll basically explain what that piece of code that you're exercising is doing. So if you have a lot of tests in there that are not necessarily relevant or not relevant to private methods, they may not be as helpful in actually describing what that public method and what that public interface does. I think that, Dave, you were kind of hinting at something like about test readability. And something that I've actually I have actually like came across today is how dry is too dry for tests. Oh yeah. Yeah, the old damp versus dry yeah. argument, right? Damp. So like we're <laughs> damp, damp, damp is like uh, dry is like don't repeat yourself and damp is what is that? Don't allow no, I don't know what it means actually. By the magic of post production. Damp means descriptive and meaningful phrases. D A M P. Definitely not a backronym. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> descriptive and meaningful phrases versus don't repeat yourself. Yeah. Mm. I don't know how phrases kind of works into that. I, I guess <laughs> in your test descriptions, you want like descriptive and meaningful phrases. But sometimes I, I find that when I like to have my like expectations extremely readable mm-hmm. and sometimes even my setup pretty readable because sometimes things can be a little bit obfuscated in code and ideally you don't want it that way. But you want like the next person that's coming across that code at least to be able to run and read the test and see like, okay, I'm asserting that this object is giving me back a dictionary that looks X, Y, and Z way. But if you have that dictionary with a, with a bunch of helpers or something, mm-hmm. it may not be so clear what that looks right. like. If and you, you're if you probably, expect that the, the output is the result of some helper function, then you have to go to page 10 and find the helper function and then like keep on working backwards. Yeah. I hate to repeat myself, I guess, but I (laughs) actually have learned to like love repetition in code because it's helped me a lot. A lot when previous authors of code have been more 
descriptive, I guess, or have been more verbose in test code. And it does lead to a lot of deleting of code and a lot more repetition, unfortunately, but it's, it is very helpful. Well, you mentioned when you do have a lot of repetition, isn't it possible to just like have, you know, the best of both worlds where you can wrap the repetition in a function that is descriptive so that then you can read it and understand what it is that it's doing and then see the repetition happen anyway? Yeah, I, I think I guess there is a balance to that. Right. I think sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't because sometimes extracting that method makes your code less readable for the purpose of testing. Now you're misdirecting people's attention away from the spec that you just wrote and into the definition of this method. And really what you want them to be focusing on is the functionality that you're testing. I see. For example, if I were testing that there was a string being returned by a, a method, I would actually type out that string even if I had to do put it in the next 10 tests. I see. Because I just prefer to see what that string is. I mean, there may be some exceptions, but like, I think that it's a lot easier to just be able to read a string than to kind of look at a variable. Mm, okay. I'm going to peacefully disagree. I'd rather have a variable with the string. And then if you ever need to know what that string is again, you can just go up there whenever you get the chance. Just if the event that that string changes for whatever reason, you only have to make that change in one place. But I totally can see why you would want to see that piece of string being tested because that is not the point of the spec. The point of the spec is the things after it. So to draw people away from that variable is no bueno. Well, I mean, it's like, it's a question of degree, right? Like in that instance, I think you could go either way with it. But let's say we were testing a rock, paper, scissors class, you know, that is able to input two hand throws of rock, paper, or scissors and then determine the winner. Right. So in your spec, you would want to pass in rock and rock, rock and paper, Paper and paper, paper, et cetera, right? right? All the way through all the different permutations. Right. Now, you could extract that into a method called, you know, evaluate and then have that in your test suite and then, you know, go through and compare, you know, have it generate your, your rock, your paper, and your scissors and all the different permutations and then have your evaluate method calculate them correctly and then return that result and compare it to what the class actually does. But now your test suite has implemented all the functionality of the class that it's supposed to be testing. And so it doesn't add any new clarity to the mm. reader. I see. Right. I think it also varies because it depends on what you're testing in your tests. Like in the rock, paper, scissors example, in one case, you may be dependent upon some other like external library. It's a, it's, talking to the GitHub API, let's say. Right. So let's say you just put like a spy on the method that makes that request. You can make an assertion on that spy. Right. And in your assertion, you may, you may like, you, you will not care about the other stuff. So I think the importance is what is your test testing? And in that expectation, you want it to be apparent what that expectation is. Right. Whether right. it's an object or a string or whatever you're testing against. I think you touched on something important that we haven't really talked about much yet which is like how many expectations you should have in your ideal unit test in each test yeah in each actually test case itself yeah i like to have one that's a good number yeah one one is a good number yes maybe in certain exceptions too although i cannot think of one of those exceptions right now 
I've sometimes squeezed too, and like if if I have a lat and a long field, then I don't want to duplicate things, and it's like it's really a tuple, maybe. Yeah, I actually had a test case that I improved upon today, and it was in JavaScript, and I was comparing something that was stored in a variable versus I can't remember something else. But there was a chance that both things were undefined. Oh. And so I noticed this bug because I wrote another test and I was like, huh, this test is not working, but this test should be working if this is defined. Right. And then I was like, oh, of course, we're testing if undefined is equal to undefined. (laughs) So I quickly added another expect clause and added that it expected not to be undefined. Right. And I think it's in cases like that where it's directly relevant to the test case mm-hmm. that it can be very helpful. I mean, I don't think I needed to add another test case that it's not undefined because I really didn't care if it was undefined. It was more that it was not working if it's undefined. Like the initial test case should fail. Right, right. You're getting a false positive. Exactly. Right, but I think like in your example, some purist... I will say, who believes in one test and one test only would have probably written that very same exact test, yeah. but then just tested that it was undefined. I think that would have been fine as well. Right. I think it gets down to the error message that you're going to produce. Because if it's undefined and you're calling a method on it, now you get an undefined is not a function kind of an error message, which is like my least favorite JavaScript error. <laughs> Unless, of course, you're comparing undefined to undefined, <laughs> in which case it just says that something is not equal to something else. Undefined is not a function is not my favorite. <laughs> is there any other message? <laughs> it's just that one, right? Yeah. How about context blocks? How do you leverage those? I think you have to have context. Like there has to actually be, in the English sense of the word, some context for the function to operate inside of. Like if you have if you have a dog class and it behaves differently when you're indoors or when you're outdoors, when you're indoors it won't poop because it's well trained. Right. Right. Yes. Then the context during which you test the poop method could be indoors and then outdoors, and then you know you can find that it will eat in either location. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the tricky thing with that though is that like maybe your dog has like an age thing, and then like at some age it becomes trained not to poop inside. <laughs> And now you have a nested context like you and then you could you could have like any number of further contexts like is this is the dog sick like does it hate you like <laughs> so, <laughs> when it hates you <laughs> so you're saying nesting contexts right and right, right. Uh, like what's the balance between nesting contexts and not nesting contexts because I've seen test suites where you have like five nested contexts and you had you had before blocks in each context and variables that were being defined in each one, and soon you didn't know what the hell was going on <laughs> in in that test. Right. Yeah, I guess it's a question. Like, is it is it really just one context where, you know, the dog is old and sick and doesn't like you? Or <laughs> <laughs> I, li- I, I like dogs, yes, by so the way. <laughs> I'm not a fan <laughs> of dogs. I'm scared of them. I'm terrified. I like to flatten my contexts. Mm-hmm. Oh, I see. But... That's not very dry. So I guess that also like comes to a balance. Right. Yeah. I mean, I agree with what William mentioned before, like the, in, in the English sense of your tests, it should match like the particular test has to have some kind of context. 
so that when you know you read it, you can say dog class when indoors, it doesn't poop on the ground, right? And it's when you and then when that test case fails, at least in a, I'm thinking Mocha comes into mind when testing React, like it'll read that way when it fails, like and then you know exactly. Oh, that context has to do when it's indoors. Okay, why is the dog pooping everywhere indoors? We need to fix that. I think it works very well when tests fail, when you, the error message you want to see. Yeah, I think that's a good rule of thumb is what is going to give the developer the best error message in the future? Because that's when your tests really matter, is when they fail and you're trying to use them to guide you to a problem. Right. Right. Going back to what I was saying before, like if the test makes it easier to work with to refactor, then, or, you know, extend, then that's a good test. So we've been talking about unit tests for some time, but what is a functional test and how does that help out in the space in the realm of the unit test? So functional tests usually test a specific, it's not functional as in you're testing a specific function, but you're, you're testing like a specific chunk or a slice of functionality. Hmm. And I think that sometimes the terminology functional is interchanged with end-to-end tests, which is interchanged with smoke tests. I think that it could be a little bit different because usually when someone's talking about a smoke test, they mean that you're following a specific path through an application and kind of clicking around and maybe doing like if you have like a content management system, you're entering some type of content and you're going from the point where you're creating the content to the point where you submit it and it gets accepted or something like that. Right. Your happy path. Yeah. Happy path testing. Another word. <laughs> and yep. Happy path tests are when you're testing when everything works. Right. right? Yes. Basically, not when you try to submit that content and somehow you get some kind of error because you can't speak to the API or whatever. Hmm. Yeah, I found out apparently the term smoke test actually comes from electronics. One way of testing a circuit board is to pass current through it and see if it smokes. If it smokes, then your board is fried and you did it wrong and you have to start over. Throw oh, that gosh. <laughs> yep. I, I've totally done that before. <laughs> yep. I always thought it was from plumbing, and I think this is from an article I read, that they would actually, to see if a, if a pipe is taut and secure before actually running water through it and then like having water spurt out everywhere, they'll actually put smoke through the pipe and try to see it come out the other end. If there's smoke that comes out any place in the pipe, then that signifies that the pipe's broken. Yeah. All right. So, so it seems like might be, these, I might be wrong. I like both these stories, but like regardless, <laughs> where there's smoke, there's fire. That's, right. the, you know. that's, that's how I thought. That's what I thought it originally <laughs> was about because when I first started hearing the term, we were running tests in production right after a deploy to see if we were going to roll back. And my thinking was, if those smoke tests fail, it's because the build is on fire. <laughs> uh, yeah, it is. It is very visceral description. But yeah, like I, I guess, like as wonderful as they are, and as as much like tangible results they have, like there's definitely a balance. Like Martin Fowler, like always with the testing wisdom and other wisdom, like he has a good article about like the testing pyramid and how. Like sometimes you want to have more functional tests, but like you should resist that and kind of stay towards the bottom of the pyramid, which is the unit test and, you know, have, have a little bit of a sandwich with some integration tests in the middle. So here's a question. 
could you have functional tests that are not necessarily a test of the UI? I guess you could if you're testing like a REST API. You could, you could test that as a functional test, or I guess it'd be like a contract test for the consumers of that. Interesting. In the smoke test, you guys, both William and Charles brought up, you have to pass in something through one side and hopefully things happen on the other end. I guess in William's circuit board result, electricity goes through, which burns the entire thing or actually just fries the entire board. And in Charles' example with the pipes, I guess that is like why it's you test it from one end to the other. And that's why it's a thing. And to end test. And to end test. Yeah. There you go with some smoke. There you go. Just to conclude the conversation on unit tests, they're very helpful. You should do it. And make sure that you're doing more unit tests to ensure that the particular unit of code that you have is working effectively. Yeah. Write a bunch. Have less functional tests. Cool. So that wraps up the episode. I'd like to thank the co-hosts. Thanks, Dave. Hey, thanks, man. Our producer, William. Anytime. And our guest, Charles. Thank you. Thank you. Awesome. Feel free to hit us up. Twitter.com slash Radio Free Rabbit. This is The Rabbit Hole. We'll see you next time.